First, he's going to wrestle. Then he's going to get married. And afterwards, we're going to have a big down-home reception. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. Uncle Albert, you a little bit nervous right now? Gene, I'm a man on a mission of love, I tell you. <laughs> what, what, what is this? Hey. In grazing again, Uncle Albert, mission of love. If you were on a mission, you would be the launching pad, brother. Take a look at this guy. You think she's getting any kind of bargain basement here? Look at this fella. From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 104 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today, we'll be taking a look at WWF Saturday Night's main event. For the first time in quite a while. It's been a bit of a hiatus on that. I'll explain why in a little bit. The second Saturday Night's main event that they did from October 5th, 1985. It was taped two days before in the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Actually, at that time, it was known as the Brendan Byrne Arena. In more modern times, the arena was known as the Izod Center and actually still stands and is only really used by musical artists for rehearsals, for shows, whether they can rent it out or whatever. So the building is still standing for whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure, although supposedly they're building something up around MetLife. I, I suppose I'll see it, you know, get going down there for WrestleMania. But what's funny is they're actually calling it the American Dream at the Meadowlands. So I don't know if any Dusty Rhodes influence confirmed first AEW show in the Meadowlands in several years. But whatever the case on that is, you don't have to pull my arm to get me to do a WWF 1985 show. I covered JCP from 85 a few weeks ago. I should probably just do a parody song of Bowling for Soups 1985. I feel like I, I could just insert different names and just you know refer to the the war between crockett and and mtv and wwf and all 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 that sort of stuff and just sort of turn that song on its head but i have less time these days i it's not just because i went to the wedding in new jersey that i actually wasn't gone for that long drove down on sunday and came back uh, on monday just that i can't establish the same routine on a week-to-week basis i don't know what it is i do get home from work earlier so i do more more recording at night i'm actually recording this in the morning which is the way i used to do it when i had my old job but that's just a completely other thing that i don't want to get into but first let me get in my plugs you can email show greensmalltown at gmail.com facebook.com slash greensmalltown give me a follow on twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. More on Pro Wrestling Only, ProWrestlingOnly.com, coming up a little bit later in the show. 
Now, one of the reasons why I chose this particular show, other than the fact that I had access to the original audio track of it with Obsession as the theme song, all the original music being played, including Hulk Hogan coming out to a different sort of song for his match, although I think part of that might have had to do with the style of match that he was in. This is the Saturday Night's main event with the Uncle Elmer wedding that was 100% real that I'll give a little bit more background on from somebody at NBC who I don't I had never heard of until this week but he wrote a book and I guess has a relatively interesting backstory but mainly because this is a wedding in the state of New Jersey and this past weekend, I attended a wedding in the state of New Jersey. And I know weeks ago, I had promised another wedding wrap-up show with my wife driving back from New Jersey, which we did on Monday morning. The thing with that, though, is that it was a little treacherous driving. There was you know, precipitation almost the entire way. And plus, my wife refused to take part in it because she kind of had laryngitis. Because it, it was a pretty good wedding reception. But I kind of want to rewind to the actual ceremony, because I'm not a huge man of faith. I grew up going to Catholic Church every Sunday, so I know the whole routine. I don't understand this whole in-your-spirit in nonsense. I don't know why they had to change the script, but that's fine. It's probably a gender thing, and it's certainly no more offensive than the Canadian National Anthem lyrics being changed in the last couple of years to the point where I didn't know about it, and I thought that the guy singing the anthem at a Bruins game about a year ago was having a stroke because he had kind of temporarily forgotten the lyrics or he went into the different lyrics and I didn't know about it. So we get to the church in Jersey City and we took a lift over there from the hotel, me and my wife, and then the two people who actually got married five weeks ago that we reported on. And the woman from that wedding is actually was actually doing a reading at this one. So consequently, it meant that she had to sit on the aisle and we had to sit up front. And I thought it was a little strange because we're sitting, of course, on the groom side. And I have mentioned that this was an interracial wedding between a black man of Jamaican descent who lives in Queens and a white girl who was born in New Jersey and mainly grew up in Ohio. And there was no real drama surrounding that. It had more to do with the fact that things were starting a little late. But back to the seating arrangement, we're sitting up in the second row on the groom side. And I look over and I'm like... This is, I feel weird because I know him, but I don't know him that well. And I know we're just sitting with the person who's doing the reading, but it's like, okay, you have these three white people and the husband of the girl doing the reading who is actually Puerto Rican. And behind us is all people of color because it's the groom's side. And I'm thinking, oh, is this Montgomery, Alabama, 1955? Is this what Rosa Parks? And I thought, okay, well, it's fine because... I had, I had, we had to sit with the person doing the reading, but I felt very self-conscious, and I was glad that the groomsmen actually sat in the row in front of us, so I didn't have to feel all weird about that. The priest, I've noticed priests at weddings, they, they never remember the script. It's Why is it every priest comes into this thing like they've never done a wedding before, and they can't, I know some of it is customized, but for God's sakes, I mean, you've been around the block, buddy, he, it wasn't like an old guy. Or anything where he would forget. He was probably like a 43-year-old dude or whatever. I do take a little bit of an issue with the two altar servers. One of them was actually in seminary, so he was a little bit older. And the younger one, he was allowed to ring the bells during the consecration, which is always a dangerous moment for me because I was caught giggling in high school and I got thrown out in the middle of it. Kind of a bad scene for me there. 
But now I'm old enough, I've forgotten about it, I, I can actually get through it. But when he's ringing the bells, he's not doing it with any vigor. It's supposed to sound like this. Like... But what he was doing was like that thing on The Price is Right you'd see where the person spins the wheel and doesn't get it all the way around, so you're supposed to boo them. So I was ready to just boo this kid because he wasn't shaking the bells with any sort of vigor. And also, when he would put it down, you get that little ding at the end that kind of reminds me of like an old guy trying to pee where you get the last bloop, bloop, bloop at the very end. And it doesn't go into the bowl. It hits like the front of the thing. And then you got to clean it with toilet paper or something like that. I don't know. Am I asking too much? Do I think somebody working in the New York diocese should probably have this down by now. But hey, that's just me. The instructions for communion were really weird, too, because they wanted non-Catholics to come up. They didn't want to have a lot of people sitting in the pews feeling like they couldn't come up. So he gave this long, weird, detailed instruction. It was like an NFL referee who takes 90 seconds to explain an illegal touching penalty. By the way, an illegal touching penalty has been called on the church many times. But you're supposed to cross your hands over your chest. I didn't quite understand what's going on. I just went up and took the damn communion like I've always done. And once the ceremony is over, we get to the outside because there wasn't like a receiving line, but we had to get out of there because whoever it was that requested the lift did it too soon and the person was there and you don't want to leave them waiting for five minutes. You'll take off and you'll get charged for it. So we had to go back to the hotel, wait a couple of hours before the reception, which was in an outstanding venue that is in Jersey City, but in the shadow of the World Trade Center, which is literally right across the river. You could look out the window of the place, and you could see it in the background behind the band. It was kind of a cool setup. And the band, it, I, I cannot recommend these guys highly enough. Now, the front man of the band was doing double duty on this night because he was also the best man and did that speech. And the way that they timed the reception was so great. Every, everything flowed perfectly. But that band, was it, they had incredible range, could do anything from Nirvana to reggae music and anything you could think of in between. It's the Corey LS band. And if you could ever book them, uh, please do so because they were freaking awesome. Probably the best band that I've ever seen. Apparently, I saw them at another wedding in a different incarnation about 11 or 12 years ago. I was reminded, but I really just could not remember that. It was a little strange when, you know, he did the song Juicy by. Notorious B.I.G. Time to get paid, blow up like the World Trade as the new World Trade Center is in the background. A little weird there, but I have to say I enjoyed it all from start to finish. And I particularly liked how Lagunitas and Founders Beer was available at the ceremony. And it was an open bar, as almost all New York weddings are. As I mentioned earlier, the show was taped two days in advance of it airing, which kind of made this a little different than some of the later Saturday Night Main events where there would be a lag in the taping. By the time you get to late 87, 88, sometimes there would be a full month in between when it was taped and when it would air. The pilot back in May, which drew an 8.8 rating, was taped on the 10th of May and actually aired the next day. This one drew an 8.3 rating, which is still very strong for a Saturday night at 11.30. And by way of comparison, Saturday Night Live for the previous season and into the 85-86 season, which hadn't debuted yet, it wasn't going to roll out until November, they were doing in the mid-sixes for ratings. So this is kind of the appeal of having the WWF on NBC is they're going to draw a better number by having this on there. Now, there's going to be a point where SNL is going to be reborn and the WWF is going to sort of fade away and they're going to cross probably about 1988, 89 or so. 
and you start seeing it fade out by 1990 and 91. And the Iraqi turncoat angle was a big part of alienating NBC, but it was mostly the falling ratings for the show vis-a-vis SNL, where you could just throw on a rerun and you would draw a better ratings number. The concept of watching one show to follow WWF or WCW has always kind of fascinated me because you have all these different programs, A show, B show, C show, sometimes even a D show. And I, I kind of want to sit down and watch watch like a show for like a period of time. Obviously, I've talked about watching WWF TV from the summer or uh, from the whole calendar year of 1984. And also how I kind of want to follow WCW from 1999 and into 2000 just by watching WCW Saturday night. See if you can follow the whole promotion. I've expressed my love for WCW Prime, which is like this completely different universe from what's going on. Saturday night's main event is something a little bit different in that it is its own world in that Things are explained to the greater audience because you have people watching this that are not hardcore fans. They're not watching Superstars and Challenge on the weekend. So it's kind of treated as it's sort of its own entity in its own world with angles that I don't want to say are contained 100% between them. But you kind of have these storylines written out for this show. Like, for example, the Hillbilly Wedding you have here kicks off a three-episode arc for Saturday night's main event, which leads to a Piper's Pit at the next one, and then a six-man match that I went over back in episode 28 or 29. I forget which episode, but it was Saturday night's main event from January of 1986. But there is a certain appeal to following the WWF just from watching the Saturday night's main events that you can see on your award-winning WWE Network. If you can deal with the very, very sanitized music like... For the pilot episode from May of 85, Hogan coming out to Real American, a song that hadn't even been released yet at that point, and just all the various music overdubs, because Obsession by Animotion is the theme song up to early 88, and then you get the theme song that everybody knows coming later on. And if you look for that May of 85 show on there, you'll notice that it's 57 minutes, which is shorter than all the other ones. And the reason for that is they cut out the entire segment having to do with the Cindy Lauper video for Goonies Are Good Enough, which is a shame because <laughs> I'm a Goonies guy because I was born during a certain period of time. I think it's one of those movies that, like, say, if you were born before 1974, you probably don't give a rat's ass about it. And if you were born after, I don't know, 1985, you probably don't care about it either. But honestly, I can live with the music overdubs for this. It's not tainting the entire character of the show like you have with ECW, where it just bothers me because I can remember what's supposed to be played, and it just kind of ruins the experience. The whole era of Saturday Night's Main Event, starting in 85 and running through 92, perfectly corresponds with the, quote, golden era of the WWF. So to follow the product just through this, and yeah, when you get to 91, you only have a couple of episodes, and then you get the two weird Fox shows from 1992, one of which I covered back in episode 39. Do check that out in the archives. It is kind of like a way to follow the history of the promotion, and they do fill in gaps for the casual fans. So if you were to introduce somebody to old wrestling from the 1980s and you wanted them to be introduced to what WWE was like 30 years ago. This is probably a good starting point. Everything is kept simple. You have backstory being explained, like when you have the little George Steele vignette on this show, which actually goes back to the first Saturday Night's main event. 
So I, I, I love these shows. When I did my blog, I, I reviewed all the Saturday Night Main events up through, I think, the middle of 89. I just stopped doing it after a while because I was devoting more of my time to doing the podcast rather than writing. And there was no way for me to really do both. I mean, some weeks I have a hard time getting into the podcast. I, I have to become more efficient at doing this. You could say, well, you could probably cut the 20-minute intro to the show. But I'm sorry, it's professional wrestling. Aren't all shows supposed to start with a 20-minute intro with, like, one person talking? I, I've seen Raw for the last 20 years. That's basically how every single one of them started. Anyway, we're at episode 104. So before we get into the Saturday Night's Been event, obviously I've been doing my Sports Moments series. And for the year 2004, there's quite a lot of them out there. Especially uh, being a kid from Boston who cheered for the Red Sox up to a certain point in time which I'll cover when we get to that one, I think. But in 04, I was kind of like Punxsutawney Phil because I was prognosticator of prognosticators for a couple of things during that year, which I'll get into as we go along. So why don't we go with the first one of those? As Lionheart turns for home, and undefeated Smarty Jones comes wide off the turn, and these two hook up at the top of the stretch. Lionheart is all heart. Smarty Jones is all out, and those two deadlocked at the eighth pole, and Smarty Jones is roused to the lead by journeyman jockey Stuart Elliott, and they have taken the lead away from Lionheart. Farther back, it's Limehouse and Imperialism, and here is the first undefeated winner of the Kentucky Derby since Seattle Slough in 1977. Smarty Jones has done it. Limehouse was second, Imperialism finished third, and Limehouse was fourth. What a moment this must be for Stuart Elliott. Talk about sports prognostications a little bit earlier and how I've called a few things correctly. And the 2004 Kentucky Derby is probably the one that I could feel the most smug and proud about because of exactly how it went down on May 1st, 2004, which is I go to a casino, which is actually near where I worked, and I had to work at 3.30 to midnight or something like that that day, but... Because you're in the Pacific time zone, Kentucky Derby starts closer to 3 Eastern time. At least it did back in 2004. I wasn't worried about Smarty Jones' pedigree or any of that. They are like, oh, he, he only won the Arkansas Derby. Who has he beaten? And I thought, no, the, this is back when I did a lot of research into this sort of thing. And he wasn't the favorite, but he was right behind the favorite in the betting odds. So I'm standing there in the sports book waiting for the race to start, just kind of leaned up against the wall on the left side of the room. And sports books in Vegas are kind of the last refuge of conversation because you're not allowed to use your cell phones when you're in there. So you just kind of talk to other people. So a guy turns to me and says, so how do you think this is going to play out? And I said, well, I believe this is a two-horse race. You got a muddy track here, so I think a lot of them are going to be left behind. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see Lionheart get out early. That's not Lionheart Chris Jericho, just Lionheart. It, he's going to get out. He's going to set the pace, but Smarty Jones is going to stalk all the way around. And then when you get to about the quarter pole, you're going to see Smarty Jones make his move at that point and eventually pull away and win. And that's exactly what happened. So as the race plays out, I'm just sitting there watching it like, oh my God, this is happening exactly as I told this guy. So it ends exactly like I said. The guy turns to me and I just give him the old salute. And I I walk away without even cashing my ticket because I didn't even have time to do that. I had to get right to work. And then I did that later. And then I broke up with my girlfriend because I told her that uh, I was moving back to Massachusetts in three or four weeks. So (laughs) quite an eventful day for me. 
So we open our show here with Nikolai Volkov and Freddie Blassie in the entranceway because they hadn't quite mastered the whole green screen thing with those Saturday Night Main Event interviews that you'd see at the beginning where they talk in front of their corporate logo and all that. Here they're still kind of in the hallway like they were in the pilot. And it's your generic Blassie Volkov promo. Nothing really of note. Blassie, it, I, I like his work. In the early 80s with the promos, I, I recall doing the show from 1981 where Vinnie Mac had him out there doing improv for like six straight minutes with Killer Khan. I thought that was asking a lot of Blassie. But here in 85, if he was a baseball player, he's clearly entered the DH phase of his career. He's not going to be playing the field, which is okay. I mean, it got Harold Baines into the freaking Hall of Fame, which, you know, that says anything. So we get a rebuttal. So all of this from Hulk Hogan, who, by the way, is solo. He does not have Oakland with him. So clearly this is taped earlier. And this is the period in time where Hogan is, he doesn't have the Hulkamania shirt yet. He doesn't have the one from 84 that said Hulk-a-mania with the kind of letters that you get at the mall t-shirt store. This is a shirt that says American Made on it, which is funny now because it would go on to become his WCW theme. You know something? I want all my fellow Americans out there to rest easy, brother, because the Hulkster's here. As far as that no-good Russian Nikolai Volkov goes, he's no threat to me, and he's no threat to America. I don't want you to get me wrong, because the Hulkster's red hot about this situation. The way that Russian goes all around the country waving that Russian flag in front of all all of our young Americans, that just gets me red hot. I got one promise for you. After tonight, after Hulkamania runs wild, there's only going to be one flag waving in this country. That's the red, white, and the blue just for you. Really got to love pre-1987 Hulk Hogan where he's more grounded and human than he would be later on when he's kind of this outsized Superman after the Pontiac Silverdome basically entered and took over his brain like some sort of earworm. It's not that I disliked Hogan after that point. It's that... When you watch him back, he's so enjoyable here. I think his character, it would literally play in any any territory all throughout history, the 84 to early 87 Hogan character. It's the kind of cartoonish, more cartoonish guy that comes along later that I think is, is a little bit strange. We also hear from the Hillbillies, Hillbilly Jim and Uncle Elmer, and they build this as the first television wedding since Tiny Tim and Miss Vicky on The Tonight Show in 1969. And Piper interrupts, as you hear heard in the intro, and they play Obsession by an emotion, uh, probably my favorite theme of any wrestling program that there's ever been, which I'll admit is kind of cheating, because it is commercial music, effectively. It's like when, for Monday Night Raw in 1997, they used that Marilyn Manson tune. So our hosts for this program are Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura, as God intended. And Vince runs down the card. <laughs> this is For all you fans of the Vince McMahon usage of the English language, you, you would love this because he uses two notwithstandings and two and then from theirs in this. But Jesse, he's got to get his talking points in. And he took to broadcasting so damn quick. I think that kind of gets forgotten that he's kind of like a, the Kurt Angle in terms of broadcasting. He jumped right into the booth, and it was as if he had always been doing it from January of 1985 when you had that transfer of power 
from Angelo Mosca to Jesse Ventura. Two great broadcasters, but for completely different reasons. Maybe you can wake me up when it's all over. You're not impressed. I'm not impressed. I'll tell you, I'm impressed with the wrestling. You don't have to sell me on the wrestling. I've been around wrestling long enough. I love the matches, but this marriage has no business in the sport of wrestling. Wrestling's a contact sport. The marriage has nothing to do with it, and I'm going on record as a broadcaster, as the man who tells it like it is, that this wedding has no, no business in wrestling. I go on the record. The issue that Jesse has with it is, wow, there's no place for this in wrestling, this wedding. But I think that you should look at it from a different perspective in that this is Uncle Elmer's workplace, and he's basically using his time at work to actually get married. I, I find that a little strange, and for for a lot of different reasons that I'll, I'll save more thoughts on it when we get to the ceremony. So Nikolai Volkov is out there for the opening match, which is a flag match against Hulk Hogan that is also for the WWF World Heavyweight title. So we have the Soviet National Anthem watch, and I'm always very interested to see what Nikolai does, because early on, he would just kind of make up his own lyrics and sing them. By the time he gets to late 84, he is actually singing the anthem pretty straight up. And for you fans of that, you'll be very happy to learn that we get real lyrics this time. always amuses me looking back on this sort of stuff with foreign heels in the 80s is that baby faces tend to be very much into censoring their opponents and stifling speech whereas the heels are more libertarian and i always i find that kind of interesting just in retrospect but of course the first amendment is has to do with government restriction of speech so the world wrestling federation could stifle nikolai volkov it would be within their rights to do that especially since this isn't a workplace but i don't know independent contractor law and all that but you also want to foster a creative environment and you know draw money well, I'll tell you what, I think Hulk Hogan is totally out of line. I think we live in America. America's a free country. And if Nikolai Volkov wants his Russian anthem played, Hogan should sit back and let him do it. All right, Jesse. Hogan's rebuttal is that he's going to put a stop to Volkov singing, which I, I know I praised him earlier, but knowing what we know now, no surprise that Hulk Hogan was into censorship even back in 1985. He comes out, this is during a kind of an odd period where he's not using Eye of the Tiger anymore, and you don't have Hulk Hogan's theme yet from the wrestling album, and Real American isn't going to be rolled out to the U.S. Express until actually next week on Championship Wrestling. So he comes out to Stars and Stripes Forever, and I'm thinking, who the hell is he, Luke Lex Luger circa 1993? And the answer is, no, he's not, because Hulk Hogan is actually over. But I guess it's an appropriate song to come out for the flag match against Nikolai Volkov, the evil Soviet heel. And Volkov attacks early as Hogan is handing the flag off to the attendant. 
Now, for those of you interested in the belt, Hogan has on the Hogan 85 belt, which is okay, but I think is overshadowed by the Hogan 86 belt, which is my personal favorite, the one that he ended up wearing at WrestleMania, I think, two and three, with all the flags around the outside, and the, the blue of the ocean. I, I like that in there. So as, as Volkov attacks early, as I mentioned, I was thinking, Nikolai, the only man to face Bruno, Pedro Morales, and Hulk Hogan for the WWF title. That's quite an eclectic mix. Of course, Pedro recently passed away. But he never faced Bob Backlund, at least as far as I could tell, in trying to find interesting Nikolai Volkov matches. I, I did come across one where Nikolai is sort of cheered as a babyface somewhat, a little bit, because it is a heel versus heel match in Philadelphia. And, you know, the, the crowd is going to split accordingly. It was Jimmy Jack Funk and Dory Funk Jr. taking on the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. A very fascinating match that just kind of showed up in my recommended one day. Hogan blocks a, a head-to-the-turnbuckle move by Volkov, and he follows up with a clothesline, that corner-to-corner -corner thing where Hogan would run in immediately after and hit the clothesline right away. Also, Hogan, because this is 1985, he's wearing all different kinds of outfits with different colors. I mentioned the American-made shirt earlier, which is white. So accordingly, he is in the all-white. So if Hogan were an NHL team, he would be he would be the road one, which I guess means Volkov gets the last line change or whatever, I guess. So the big boot sends Nikolai over the top rope, and he ends up on the table on the outside, which is not anything like the tables that you would see later on. It's kind of like the one I have in the unfinished part of my basement that I bring upstairs on holidays to use as my bar. It's nothing fancy and certainly nothing you would ever want to go through. Hogan gets out to the floor and he wants to do more damage, but then he goes for the lowest percentage move in all of professional wrestling, which is he gets Volkov in a headlock and decides he's going to run him into the ring post, at which point Volkov throws him off and he hits the ring post, and back inside you get a double axe handle by Volkov off the second rope, which I thought was interesting, Volkov taking to the air. And then he gets Hogan up in the press slam into the backbreaker, which was his finisher for quite a long time. I think you'd see it in the intro to primetime wrestling all the way up, I think, through 1988 when they changed to that sax theme song that everybody loves. Hogan kicks out of Volkov's finisher, which is not necessarily a surprise, obviously, but it's that he doesn't do the Hulk up at this point, because Hogan matches pre-87, much like his character, are kind of designed a little bit differently in that you don't have guy hits the finisher, Hogan immediately Hulks up. You're usually going to have some kind of sequence in between, which is Volkov going for a pile driver, but he gets a backdrop out of it. The the old Steve Austin memorial move from the Attitude Era, except this one is actually in the ring. And Vince was really off his game on that one. He said he was going for the backbreaker. I suppose that's possible that he was going up for the body vice backbreaker that Jesse Ventura and Rick Rude used, because Volkov was known to break that out occasionally. But the comeback by Hogan is cut off a slam and he goes for the pin now, and we get the Hulk up, as you know and expect, the three right hands. But then a reversal of the Irish whip from corner to corner, and Volkov ends up missing the charge into the corner. And this reminds me very much of the Hogan-Iron Sheik match from January of 84 in MSG, when Hogan rammed Sheik into the corner 
getting out of the camel clutch. Here, Volkov runs himself into the corner, falls in the center of the ring, leg drop finishes, one, two, three. Hulk Hogan, the winner of the flag match against Nikolai Volkov to kick off this Saturday night's main event. Not much to this match, except now we're going to get something that doesn't happen today because WWE is a public company, and God forbid you do something like have your top babyface grab the Soviet flag Hogan decides to headbutt it for whatever reason, a piece of cloth. I'm not sure what that's going to accomplish. So instead, he puts his boot up on the corner turnbuckle and starts shining his shoes with the Soviet flag. And once again, Libertarian Jesse is very upset. Now, there's no reason to do this. Hogan is America. This is a free country, McMahon. Hogan has no business. Look at that. That's disgraceful in my opinion, McMahon, what he's doing. Shining his shoes with the man's flag from his home country. Disgraceful. Now, Jesse's kind of right. Things were a little delicate between the U.S. and the Soviet Union because a month from now, we got the summit in Geneva between President Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And luckily, this whole action by the world heavyweight champion didn't derail that thing entirely. Because Geneva, while they didn't accomplish a whole lot, those two guys, it was very important for Reagan and Gorbachev to get together and form a personal bond. And that they would build on that at Reykjavik the next year in Washington in 87 and then finally in Moscow in 1989. It's kind of the key to diplomacy is developing that kind of personal relationship between the two. And it was a question asked of Reagan in his first term, why he wasn't meeting with any of the Soviet leaders. And Reagan actually said, they keep dying on me, which sounds like a joke, but it was actually true because you had Chernenko and Antropov in like 84 and 85. And before that, you had that, that sex pot, Leonid Brezhnev, who died in 1982. High snapping is through his hands. And he kicks it out of the end zone for the safety. We've seen a couple instances where it's got away from the quarterbacks. And this time it gets away from the Colts' long snapper. Good job by Hunter Smith. Just give up the two points and get the football out of play. This was my other great prognostication of the year 2004 in sports. And it's kind of weird because it's a very specific thing from the AFC Championship game in January of 2004 between the Patriots and the Colts. I said to my friend Chris that I thought because the Colts had not punted in the playoffs at that point. They had gone two straight games where they had done the full Patriots Super Bowl 52 thing. No punts at all. I said, at some point in this game, they're going to have to punt. And probably on the first one, something bad is going to happen to them. It's going to get blocked or you're going to have a bad snap. And sure enough, the snap goes over the punter's head because it was in their own territory. He just kicked it out of the end zone for a safety. The game ended up being 24-14. So it was kind of a big deal because that made it a two-score game in the end. Much tougher for the Colts to come back. I know my experience watching that game was not that great because out in Vegas, we went to a bar called The Boston, which, as you might imagine, is a Boston-themed bar. And unfortunately, late in the first half, they ran out of beer. Yes, they ran out of beer, which meant we had to go to another establishment and watch the second half. Not sure if we went right to Buffalo Wild Wings. I think we may have because we knew that they weren't going to run out of beer and they had plenty of wings and all that sort of stuff. I know we watched the NFC Championship game where Carolina beat the Eagles in Philadelphia to advance to their first Super Bowl. But I know that 
uh, th- that meal was actually very memorable because I vowed to eat 50 wings in one sitting, and I came pretty damn close. I, I got to 42, which we ordered 100 wings, and my friend Chris and my friend Merrill, who was out there at the time, had they split 50 of their own. I don't know how many of them they got through, but I know that when I was done, I only had eight left. So 42 wings in one sitting is a pretty impressive accomplishment. I don't know if it's any better or worse, depending on your perspective, than the time I ate 60 oysters. I think that all kind of depends on your perspective. So Gene is with Hulk Hogan again. (laughs) Feels like there's a lot of Hogan promos on this show, but he's very excited because even though he's got, he he just had a match, his night is far from over. Well, you know something, Mean Gene? If you live this thing day and night, brother, you can believe in it, just like all these Hulkamaniacs do. But if Nikolai Volkov, brother, if you didn't get the message that the USA, the red, white, and blue is going to live forever, I'll explain it to you a little slower next time, baby doll. Let's take it easy there, Hulk, because baby doll's in Crockett right now, so she's not coming along. But Hogan is very excited for this wedding coming up, and especially for Mean Gene, who will be playing the organ at the ceremony. An actual organ, that is not a euphemism for masturbation. So hey, we got Uncle Elmer up next. He says that he is not worried at all about his impending nuptials, and he also has a match coming up next. God help us all. But the thing that really gets me about this is what Hillbilly Jim had to say. And this is more problematic and questionable than even his Castro-esque four-hour Hall of Fame speech. What's the best wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation got to worry about? You've got a good point. Not a thing. You better believe it. Cousin Junior, you're going to do a little dancing tonight at the wedding? Well, like always, Mean Gene. That is how much of a professional Mean Gene Okerlund is, that he did not burst into laughter as he was known to do sometimes when they would do those interviews with the local promos and stuff like that, when Hillbilly Jim insinuates that Uncle Elmer is the best wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation. What the hell was that? I mean, that that is weirder than the four-hour Hall of Fame speech, I have to say. So Jerry Valiant, who is going to be Uncle Elmer's opponent for this one, he is in the ring looking like he's ready to audition to be Dr. Houseman in (laughs) Dirty Dancing. I know you weren't the one who got Penny in trouble. Yeah. Wrong, I say I'm wrong. I mean, Valiant is no Jerry Orbach or anything, but he had some contacts on his side, such as a pre-national Oprah who he worked commentary with for an episode of AM Chicago where they covered a WWF show earlier in 1985. So he goes from working with Oprah Winfrey to this right here as Uncle Elmer and the rest of the hillbillies enter the ring. And Jesse has a comment on the bib overalls. You know what I'm enjoying about this, McMahon? What's that? Look at it. Looks like they all got brand new bib overalls. They must have sprung ten bucks apiece. This caused me to look up how much bib overalls would be if you were interested in buying them now. It's 30 to $40 if you look for them online. Having so many hillbillies there surrounding Jim, the idea is to give Hillbilly Jim something to do when he was nursing the leg injury in 1985. At this point in the year, he is about ready to come back. But 
for all his best efforts, and he helped get the thing over, at least to an extent, for a while. It did kind of diminish him and kind of soften his popularity a little bit. He was always very popular. When you have a whole parade of guys who are basically operating in the same gimmick as Jim, it kind of takes away a whole bunch of his oeuvre, I guess. And that injury was pretty devastating in January of 85, not just for you know the severity of the injury itself, but... For where they could have gone with him, I mean, I I think that maybe Jim would have been in the corner instead of Jimmy Snooker for WrestleMania. I don't know. Maybe that's a bit of a reach because Snooker, a much bigger, more established name to kind of sell the show on. Hillbilly Jim was very, very new, and you don't see him anywhere near WrestleMania because you don't have the other Hillbillies coming in until a little bit later in the year. So as the match gets started, this thing actually lasts less time than the clip of Dr. Houseman apologizing to Johnny Castle for casting aspersions on him as Valiant charges and he is caught with a body slam by Uncle Elmer, who gets down in the pinning position, one, two, three, because he's a really fat guy and Valiant just can't kick out of it. And they announce the fall at six seconds because we have to break the nine-second record from WrestleMania, which was completely BS as it was because of SD Jones taking too long in the damn corner to get up to take that avalanche. It's just a kind of a cautionary tale again to be careful who you give your promotions records to such as oh i don't know winning the royal rumble from number one and lasting the longest time in the ring because you never know what they might turn into they might no show a card on you or commit uh, multiple murders you, you, you really never know you, you gotta vet this thing out properly so th- this match is over and they actually have enough time to show a complete replay of the sd jones king kong bundy match from WrestleMania, the original, and that kind of plants the seed a little bit, I guess. I do talk about how, you know, Saturday Night's Main Event operates in its own universe. Eventually, down the line, you're going to have an Uncle Elmer match with King Kong Bundy, but that won't be until May of 1986, pretty much the end for Uncle Elmer at that point. And they show some guys in the crowd, and you, you can't really see his face all that well, but they identify him. Yes, it is. Future WWE Hall of Famer Arnold Schwarzenegger in the crowd, sitting behind NBC television executive Brandon Tartikoff, who was very influential in the 80s and into the early 90s on the network, really turning the thing around. Because NBC was in a very bad place around 80, 81. Coincidentally, around the time that... uh, SNL, all the main cast members left, although that had very little to do with it. Fun fact about Brandon Tartikoff is he was one of the uh, producers on the television show Punky Brewster, and the dog Brandon is so named for him. Ference over to the right point to Warner. He lets the shot go, deflected wide. Off the glass in left corner to Aginla. Aginla to the left circle. Passing to Yell. A shot. Save made by Aginla. Three bounds. Another shot. A score! The Flames win it! Yeah, baby! Overtime 3 2. Flames gaining the win as Martin Jelena knocks it in on the rebound. Oh, a wild flame celebration as they score on the power play. That was a special request of Kelly Nelson, co-host of the Worldcast podcast, Calgary Flames fan, and the Ted DiBiase to my brother love in that he was my benefactor bringing me onto pro wrestling only back in the day. 
And I play that not only because it was requested, but because that Calgary Flames team was quite likable. And I'm not just saying that because, like, 10 of those guys ended up playing for the Bruins later as Peter Shirelli obsessively tried to reassemble the 2004 Calgary Flames for whatever reason. Chuck Kobasu, Jerome McGinla, uh, all various guys. Even Chris Clark came in for a tryout at one point. Martin Jelena, hell of a playoff run that year with the overtime winner in Game 1 games excuse me first game seven of round one then he has the overtime winner to knock out the Detroit Red Wings in the next round then you get to game six of the conference final he scores the game winning goal in that one and then you get to the Stanley Cup final where well he probably did score the game winning goal in game six Uh, I'm not gonna relitigate that one especially considering there was a similar controversy the other night between the Bruins and the Sharks where The Bruins clearly scored a goal in the first period where the puck was definitely over the line by just about any camera angle, and they didn't even really bother to review it. And then the Bruins ended up winning the game, or tying the game with a controversial goal late in regulation and then winning it in overtime. So these things have a way of working out in the long run. I guess it didn't for the 4 Flames, but they're certainly looking good this year, and they're one of the leaders in the clubhouse of teams that have come in to Boston play the Bruins that has impressed me the most. And speaking of obscure things that have impressed me, we move along now to the Body Shop, which I was kind of surprised to see on this Saturday night's main event. The B-Show from All-Star Wrestling, probably the best B-Show segment for kind of interviews that they would have. I mean, there's not a whole lot of competition. Yes, Brother Love did start out on Wrestling Challenge, but it was there so briefly. I don't even think you can count it as that because it moves to superstars by the fall. So it's only a couple of months. You're going up against the likes of Blackjack's Barbecue, the Snake Pit, which uh, not a lot to the Snake Pit, I don't think. And the body shop had to deal with just the weird set where it's just like gym equipment and not even like good-looking gym equipment for the mid-'80s. But Jesse, I think, was very good at it and certainly a natural. And if he was to do that, you know, in 86, when Piper goes away, of course, Jesse goes to film Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's in the crowd for this particular show. I do think that he would have he would have been perfectly good in that role if he wanted to give that a shot. But this show isn't really given much heed at all because nothing really happened on the body shop of great note. Not a lot of angles on the B show anyway. So when you get down to the interview segment, if you really want something to happen, you are going to throw it on Piper's Pit or on the Flower Shop in 86. We have Bobby the Brain Heenan, who is up for the Manager of the Year, which I did discuss in the earlier episode I did on uh, Championship Wrestling, November 9th, 1985. That's back episode 17. I encourage you to go back and check out the archives, because I can't even remember all the shit that I've said. So just... (laughs) go back and just relive it and we'll all figure out what the hell was going through my mind at the time so heenan is there and we're right in the middle of that bounty on paul orndorff i feel like i've done a lot of episodes with heenan's bounty on orndorff because it did last a while from the point where orndorff fires him in the spring and here we are we're almost at winter and it's still going on and you think eight months from now he's going to take heenan again as his manager but hey they're at war right now. That's correct. I made the man a star. I brought his name. I brought his ability. I brought everything to the surface. 
Is it true he fired you? On national television, that man fired me. And the only reason he did that was because he got word that 30 seconds down the road, I was going to dump him. So the real news is that the bounty has now gone from $25,000 all the way up to $50,000. A neat little way of kind of introducing this Heenan and Orndorff angle to the wider NBC audience. However, I'd be happy if they put a $50,000 head on <laughs> a $50,000 bounty on the head of that friggin' horn guy because he's all over this show and he is so friggin' annoying. I only have room for one horn guy in my life. And I think it's because he got there first. It's that guy who plays the horn at the Washington Capitals games. If, if you've ever seen a Caps game on TV from the, well, I want to call it the MCI Center, but I know it became the Verizon Center, is now Capital One Arena. You can hear him pretty much ten times a game. <laughs> I know Cap's horn guy annoys a lot of people. There's somebody at Pittsburgh Penguins games who has started doing it. Complete ripoff. Come on, Penguins. Let the Caps have that. They've only beaten you a handful of times. For God's sakes, let, let them have a horn guy. So they go to Paul Orndorff for his rebuttal. He he's kind of has none of it. So Oakland <laughs> kind of pokes the bear a little bit by saying that Piper... His opponent on this evening, we yes, we have a Roddy Piper versus Paul Ordorf match. Piper has started spending the bounty money. So I'm kind of interested. I know a lot of this is scripted, but I don't know how scripted the promos are. Where do they have Orndorff's response set in stone, or is it, how's, how is he going to roll with this? All right, now, Paul Orndorff, it sounds to me like Rowdy Roddy Piper is already spending that money. Oh, yeah? Well, what's he spending on? More dresses or what? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be uh, plumbing, more plumbing. Plumbing? Yes, what? for the Piper Manor. Plumbing? Well, let me tell you, Piper, the only thing you know about plumbing is when you used to skin dive for Rotor Rooter. How about that, boy? I thank huh? you very much. I'm ready for it. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Oh my god, I fucking hate that fucking horn guy. I wish you'd shut the fuck up. I'm not even going to fucking bleep that. It's so annoying. Oh my god, what the hell? So yeah, they completely scripted that joke because the old skin diver for Roto-Rooter is basically kind of like the, you know, your, your father is a skin diver for Roto-Rooter, your mother wears army boots, you know, that that sort of thing. So some pretty basic stuff. I don't know if you could give Mr. Wonderful the advanced stuff that maybe a Roddy Piper could do. Simple as this. Thoughts on it. If you don't pay me the 50 grand, I'll rip Bobby Heenan's throat out too. I come here to get 50 grand. I come here to get rid of some guy that's got baby oil all over him who's sitting here trying to look pretty. I don't need to put baby oil on me to look pretty. I don't need to tell you how tough I am. You know how tough I am. You don't want to give me the 50 grand. I'll collect it from your grandmother if I have to collect it from her. I'm very curious. I don't understand your attitude, Roddy Piper, toward the big wedding tonight for Uncle Elmer. Think of it this way. If Uncle Elmer gets married, possibly in another 12 years, there may be five more Uncle Elmers in America. Who the hell needs that? As much as I'm not a fan of Uncle Elmer, I can think of who would need five more Uncle Elmers. That would be AEW. They need talent, for God's sakes. They can't all be 179-pound flippy guys like the Young Bucks. you got to have a variety in your product. So having a 430-pound fat guy who can barely move to kind of play off, you need different kinds of wrestlers in your promotion. So 
I think that those those kids would be of the age to sign with an AEW at this point in time. So why don't we just roll right into this match, which is Roddy Roddy Piper versus Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. A gem of a feud arising out of the WrestleMania main event and the way that went down with Orndorff eating the pan, Piper leaving him for dead in the ring. A great feud for a brief time where you keep Piper in the main event, top of the card scene, and you move Orndorff over to the babyface side, but he's still elevated at that level. Piper, here, he gets the full entrance with the bagpipes in the Meadowlands, and Vince takes the opportunity to refer to Bobby Heenan's cash as Confederate money. I thought that that was kind of an odd reference, but I think Confederate money has always been kind of shorthand for, well, his money is completely worthless. Although, I don't know, Blackjack Mulligan was recently in the promotion. I mean, you never know what might be going on with counterfeiting and all that. And Heenan is hanging out by ringside with the briefcase as they actually go to commercial before the match gets underway. And when we come back, this is a pure fight where it looks like two guys actually fighting on the street. Like one of those online videos that you might see from the city or something like that. Orndorff gets the upper hand, but Piper clotheslines him out of the corner. And with Mr. Wonderful down on the mat, Piper takes advantage and starts throwing Orndorff's head into the mat. I was trying to remember, and I actually have seen Orndorff versus Piper on Greetings from Allentown. There was a brief clip of it played on the Tuesday Night Titans from August of 85 that I covered back in episode 30. This really looks like a fight, and this is the appeal of it to me, that these guys are holding nothing back. You get biting by Paul Orndorff. Always kind of a simple thing where, yeah, you don't have to actually bite the guy if you could just give the illusion of it. That certainly conveys a level of hatred that is over the top. Piper hits a DDT that is one of the weirdest looking things I've ever seen where he just kind of falls backwards slowly rather than the kind of snap and bring the guy to the ground. I mean, after all, Jake Roberts isn't there, so the DDT is not something that's really being used by anybody in the WWF. It, it is kind of fortunate for Jake, who doesn't arrive until March of 86, that nobody stole the move in advance of him getting there. And Piper is putting the boots to Orndorff, and they actually end up outside the ring, where in the YouTube video we get a weird cut that freaked me out to the point where I actually turned on the network version of this, of all things, to see if there was anything that I missed. And oddly enough, it was something that you would ordinarily think it would be cut from the network version that I would see on YouTube, which was a chair to the head by Piper that actually ends up missing. And you think that they would edit that out of the network version because, you know, there's a certain aversion to chairs to the head and the damage that that causes. Piper is sent into the table at ringside and he rolls back in and Orndorff grabs something at ringside. You can't really see what it is. I thought it was the ring bell at first, but it never actually comes into play. I, I don't know if I was just seeing things or whatever. Orndorff comes in off the top rope, nails Piper, and then hits the back suplex, letting everybody know that he is ready to work all Japan if called upon. Because after all, that New Japan relationship with the WWF had just fallen apart. So anything goes. Of course, Vince probably ain't going to let Orndorff work Japan anyway. Although, 
in actuality, wouldn't have been a bad idea for Orndorff to disappear for a little while, late 85, 86, because you get to the time of WrestleMania 2, he starts to flounder a bit. If he'd showed up in the Real World Tag League in late 85, it wouldn't have been the worst possible thing for him. Poked to the eye by Piper, a classic fashion by the rowdy one, regains control, then he hits a knee lift. Two men collide shoulder to shoulder in the center of the ring. However, unfortunately, our referee for this one is Dick Worley, who, yeah, he's a staple of WWF television going back many years, and he had certain foibles that would annoy me, like, do you understand that this is professional wrestling and this is a work, and you don't have to count 1 to 10, like, really, really fast to the point where he's going, 1, 2, 3. You, you can build a little bit of drama but I guess it's okay because it's Saturday Night Main Event and we're only giving them four and a half minutes or whatever it is. So I guess I can allow an exception, but his style is rather annoying. Piper is up first. Piper is up first. And I love when dudes go for moves that are just not within their arsenal and they end up missing. Like Piper goes for a splash here like he's the ultimate warrior or whatever. But that hits Orndorff's knees. And a crossbody by Mr. Wonderful, which is also rather unusual, though I've probably seen him do that before. And it, it almost is kind of like a Royal Rumble spot in that they end up both going over the top and they end up on the floor where they start fighting. And that leads into our finish here. We get a double countout as nothing is resolved between these two. This is one feud where if you have a double countout between these guys, they're like, yeah, it's kind of a BS finish. Nothing is really settled. I would pay money to go see these guys do this match for five minutes pretty much any day of the week. I always think of my favorite matches that last under five minutes. I think of Dynamite Kid versus Randy Savage at the Wrestling Classic, Owen Hart versus 123 Kid at the King of the Ring 94. There are probably other ones that I'm thinking of as well. This one, pretty good. I, I think a lot of the Piper Orndorff matches, I, I, don't, I think they might have been longer than five minutes on house shows. But this match, uh, I don't want to call it a hidden gem or anything, but it's not something that is particularly played out. A four to five minute fight where they're going at an extremely good pace. And in fact, it doesn't even stop at the bell. They end up fighting all the way up the aisle into the locker room area where Piper gets into a room and it, th there's a struggle to close the door and he finally does and Orndorff is kind of locked out. He's just kind of hitting the door. Some really good stuff here it's a match that i i recommend seeing because these two guys had really good chemistry with each other and i really think that i should just seek out as many house show matches with these guys kind of like piper versus rick rude from 89 and 90 i think i need to watch some of those this piper's in ring work when he gets to wwf he's criticized maybe it's not the same as it was back when he was in georgia or you know, Mid-Atlantic, or any place that he had been before, Portland. But th there's certain stuff like this where it was different than anything else you were seeing in the pro show. It was not like a Hogan match. It was not like anything else you were seeing on the card. It was unique. And for all of Piper's history and all those various places, I know one place you can go to to kind of meditate on all of that, which is ProWrestlingOnly.com. 
You can explore other podcasts, match reviews, not just Roddy Piper matches, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, maybe Piper's book that I believe was released posthumously, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows, movies, and more. I don't know, like Body Slam, Tag Team, stuff like that. You can join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only forums online for over a decade, might be 11 years now, actually. Well, that's over a decade, but over 2,000 registered members, of which I am one, in an archive of over 4,582,389 threads. The message board is a vibrant community on its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in the match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the microscope form, or discuss more topics from general general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check all of that out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. Jackson challenging Derek Coleman. Somebody should just get Jackson out of it. As possible. The problem is, if Wallace is ejected, I'm not sure, he'd have to walk past the pace of bench to go. Now Artest has jumped over the scorer's table and is trying to get down to the bench. Artest is in the stands. Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans. Rasheed Wallace going into the stands. The security trying to somehow restore order. Fans and players are going at it, and the players trying to help each other out. This is a disgrace. Really not a whole lot I can add to the Ron Artest fight with the Detroit crowd on that night in November of 2004, other than to say, you know something is really bad when Bill Walton is like loudly announcing that he's not having fun anymore and he, he, he will have none of this. I feel like he's the most fun-loving guy in the world and he's just embarrassed by the entire situation. That really did change the NBA going forward. There were a lot of fights before then, but then just a complete crackdown after what that led to. Now, before I get into Uncle Elmer's wedding, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that right before they went to the commercial break after the Piper Orndorff thing, Jesse Ventura set up Vince where Vinnie Mac hits us with a gorilla-ism. We'll be right back with the first network wedding since Tiny Tim and Miss Vicky. Another thing I need to track down is all episodes of Championship Wrestling where Jesse sat in with Vince, either replacing Bruno or alongside Bruno in these early years, because the chemistry between these two was always there as one of the best broadcast pairings of all time, the way they would play off each other. Now, as for this wedding, it was the brainchild of the folks at the National Broadcasting Company, so you can blame or thank them, depending on your perspective for this. It does go back to that Tonight Show wedding with Tiny Tim, because it drew 40 million viewers back in 1969. By the way, that ended in divorce, that marriage, in 1974 i never quite understood the appeal of tiny tim i think it was a generational thing and i'm kind of an old soul who watches these 70s sitcoms and all that and even tiny tim is is a little too old even for me i didn't note this earlier but at this wedding last weekend i was delighted when we get into the reception hall and my table which was not table five i'd like to be table five because of the Simpsons reference, ah, 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 table five, table five. That was table two, but it was the one right next to the bar. So that means three consecutive weddings that I've been seated next to the bar. 
And I think that's a good idea to do that for me because there have only been two weddings that I've attended where I did not drink, at least, you know, when I was of drinking age. And both of those marriages ended in divorce. So it's something where I got to get my drink on if you want to have a successful marriage. That's why you put me next to the bar. So the background of how this wedding came to be on NBC and whose idea for it. I I found a little bit of background. I, I know some of the folks at NBC have written books over the years. I have Warren Littlefield's book, Top of the Rock, but it doesn't really go into any of the stuff to do with Saturday Night's main event. Instead, I found a different book called Saturday Night Live, Equal Opportunity Offender, The Uncensored Censor by a William Clotworthy. And his whole, I guess, bit was he was the standards and practices guy at NBC all through the 1980s. And it's not not the gimmick standards and practices as you'd see in WCW. That was a complete friggin' nightmare and all that. This was the actual guy who they would go to and clear stuff for. And he actually wrote a book about his experiences. And he talks about the Uncle Elmer wedding of all things in the book. So let me read an excerpt from that book. Speaking of thrusting buttocks, which we were earlier, I don't know what that means, the craziest and most irreligious adventure I approved was Uncle Elmer's wedding on Saturday night's main event, the wrestling extravaganza that replaced SNL on occasion. As a matter of fact, I was party to the event, much to my shame. Uncle Elmer was a WWF wrestler, a 400-pound hillbilly whose gimmick was wearing bib overalls, a floppy hat, and a sweet jet, sweet gentle nature elmer was no kid just a sweet middle-aged man with diabetes and other problems trying to make a living before his time ran out his partner was his nephew hillbilly jim who when elmer was being tossed around came to his rescue by swatting the bad guys with a two by four what a great sport i don't remember hillbilly jim ever with a two by four so this dude's taking some poetic liberties or whatever elmer made the mistake of announcing his engagement and the geniuses behind Saturday night's main event thought it would be clever to have Elmer marry in the ring on national television, and he agreed. The producers, Dick Ebersol and Vince McMahon, Mr. Class is in parentheses, asked for our approval and advice. Harking back to Tiny Tim's wedding to Miss Vicky, we couldn't conjure up a reason not to proceed, and I even suckered our religious advisor, Dr. Richard Gilbert, into writing the ceremony, although he wisely opted not to personally officiate. Yeah, I'd say that was pretty wise. On the big night, an arbor was set up in the ring. Uncle Elmer, best man Hillbilly Jim, and a local minister were in place, and the radiant bride, a waitress from Tennessee, marched down the aisle and up into the ring. Now, there was a pretty sight, a bride in a wedding gown clambering between ring ropes. What we had not been told, however, was that wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper and a couple of henchmen were to be disruptive by tossing golf balls, batteries, and other junk at the bride and groom to make snide and insulting comments and otherwise break up the ceremony in the name of television, quote, entertainment. In proper wrestling mode, of course, Hibbley Jim leaped to Elmer's defense by starting a fracas with Piper that turned into a less-than-romantic experience in the married life of Mr. and Mrs. Uncle Elmer. So there you have it. William Clotworthy, who you'd probably never heard of before and will never ever think about again. The standards and practices guy from NBC discussing Uncle Elmer's wedding. And this kind of makes me think about my own wedding back, oh my god, I can't believe it's nine years ago this year. That was a long-ass day for me because we got married at 10.30 in the morning because the venue was booked on that day at, I think it was 5 o'clock or whatever it was. So we took the early slot, 
and what happened to me was kind of a cautionary tale because you're up so early, you're kind of expected to start drinking, you know, before the ceremony. I remember we had Karate Kid on in the groomsman room right beforehand, which was nice because it was actually serendipitous because it was on one of the TV channels. And not only did we have the ceremony at 10.30, we go through with the reception, which lasts until 4 or whatever, but we have an after party at the hotel afterwards in the late afternoon into the evening where I'm plied with shots and I'm I'm drinking beer at an extremely rapid rate because I'm talking to my wife's uncle who played for the California Angels in 79 and 80. I, I looked him up on baseball reference and I, I was asking him all this stuff like him throwing out Ricky Henderson trying to steal three straight times back in 79. Stuff like that. Like, oh, Ricky is dumber than a bag of rocks. Uh, something like that. Because he was always trying to steal no matter what the situation. So I end up drinking too fast. I end up passing out in a parking lot. That's that's not really important. At, at the end of the day, the most important thing was that my wedding had a very tangential connection to the great Tom Brady. In that the minister that we had the justice of the people whatever you want the efficient if you will was a childhood friend of tom brady's dad so that is one connection that i have to tom brady maybe i'll find another one later maybe that's a little bit of foreshadowing so here's the thing you can't kayfabe a wedding in the state of new jersey it's got to be real so this is an actual wedding ceremony so that makes me think, why did Joyce Stasko, the bride in this case, actually agree to marry this gigantic man who's going to be on top of her, presumably, later that night? I, I, let's think of this poor woman. Oh, my God. Uncle Elmer on top. She wasn't going to be able to kick out either. If Jerry Valiant couldn't kick out, how the hell is Joyce Stasko going to kick out? But think of the savings that she got from having this wedding here you got to figure nbc is picking up the tab for the reception for the ceremony itself you don't have to hire a videographer because nbc is basically including that in their package i don't know if you'd even hire your own photographer i mean you'd save a lot of money weddings are very expensive especially in the new york area where they're getting married now you think well why don't they get married you know she's from tennessee is what it said. Why don't you get married where Uncle Elmer lives? Well, you, you you get married where you know where where it's right, I guess. And if it's gonna save them a lot of money to get married in New Jersey, fine, go ahead. Plus, Joyce probably got a check out of this whole deal. She got paid for getting married, which I can't say that I blame. She should get paid for get marrying that guy. Oh my god, I, I just can't help but think about the, the poor woman when they're like making love oh my god and it just makes me glad that my my wedding was not on any sort of video i at least uh, i don't think anybody took video of the ceremony because i look kind of awkward up there when we're doing like the vows and part of the reason for that is i i had something very odd in my head i had the you know the theme from <laughs> the $25,000 pyramid when they go to the winner's circle that music that plays when they're doing the 60 second clues to try and win 25000 or 100000 if it was the later version of Pyramid. I don't know why that got stuck in my head at that period of time probably because it's like two people staring at each other which is basically what the winner's circle on Pyramid was 
I mean, hearing this music makes me think of the time a couple of months ago when I was watching a thing on YouTube, a montage of Dick Clark interrupting the Winner's Circle game when somebody had, like, cheated, where it's like, ah, ah, you, you know, they, they moved their arms or something that was illegal. And I was just like, it, it drove my wife crazy that I was watching this. I'm like, why? I mean, I, I'm just watching old game show stuff. I mean, th- this is pretty much who I am. So anyway, this ceremony is, the highlight is Jesse Ventura unplugged. Because, as he said in interviews many times, in fact, I've heard it more than once from Jesse in either podcast or shoot interviews, he's just told to go out and bury Uncle Elmer to kind of further the storyline with him and with Piper and the hillbillies and all that. I think Joyce ought to be the one nervous. What? Can you imagine? This lady is going to spend the rest of her life with this guy. Can you imagine McMahon waking up in the morning after a hard day's work? You had a tough day, tough night. In the morning you wake up and that's laying across I think maybe she's having second thoughts. Vince is such a carny trying to put over the drama of this where, oh, she might walk away when really she's up on the apron trying to figure out how to get into the ring with a wedding dress. I mean, brides aren't exactly running a hundred yard dash or anything like that, you know, in those dresses. It's not easy to move around. That's why you'll often have the maid of honor, you know, holding the train, making sure that everything is going okay. By the way, that church and the wedding that was I, I, I don't I don't I should have mentioned this. That aisle was so freaking long, I thought that they were gonna come down the aisle in the WrestleMania three ring carts. That would actually be a cool thing for a wedding. Although I don't know if you could get one of those in there. But the great thing also, and yeah, there's a lot of praise for Jesse Ventura and his performance here. But don't sleep on Vinnie Mac because they're playing a wonderful game of two-on-two basketball where Jesse is the scorer and Vince is setting him up for all these dunks, for all these easy dunks as the consummate point guard in this whole thing. Well, Wouldn't you like to have that picture? Wouldn't you like to have that framed in your living room? Look at <laughs> enduring home. That's nice. I think the judge should sentence both of them to jail. Will you, Uncle Elmer? Oh, yeah, and hearing the officiant say, Will you, Uncle Elmer? Oh, so you can't kayfabe a wedding in New Jersey. It has to be a real wedding, but you're allowed to use the name Uncle Elmer when that Elmer isn't even his real name? It seems to be a real cognitive dissonance in what's going on here. But then I remember, oh yeah, it's a 450-pound fucking hillbilly getting married on TV. Enter into marriage with Joyce. Here comes the first question. Will you love her, respect her, and support her through good times and bad? I do. He does what? I guess he's going to support her. Can you imagine when she has to support him? Uh, Will you love him, respect him, and support him through good (laughs) times and bad? I will. You join hands, please. He answers, I do. She says, I will. Here comes the first contact, the joining of hands. Uncle Emmer and his bride-to-be Joyce. That's good stuff, but things start to get really weird as you get more into this. And that's without mentioning some of the people in the ring. Lou Albano isn't even the oddest-looking dude there because you got all the other hillbillies. But Andre the Giant is wearing his wrestling gear. He's wearing just the 
red trunks and it's got full banana hammock at this point it's basically like a dude has decided to go to a wedding wearing a speedo which i guess when the groom is wearing bib overalls you can get away with and the fact that andre probably didn't like uncle elmer anyway (laughs) for the simple fact that he hated anybody else who was a big guy But yeah, I guess they couldn't hook Andre up with any sort of outfit where he could look like an actual human being. It just looks so bizarre that you have this wedding. Even Hogan got dressed into different clothes that looks somewhat formal for him. I'm not saying it's anything that he would wear to court in more recent vintage, but he he looks nice at the very least. Now we get to the point where Uncle Elmer starts to lose it a little bit. Repeat after me. Uh oh, here we go again. Uncle Elmer. I, Uncle Elmer, (laughs) accept you as my wife. Accept you as my wife. To respect and love. To expect and love. Expect what? For better or worse. I was respect, not expect. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. Or richer or poorer, He's nervous. I yes. pledge. I pledge myself to you. I pledge myself to you. Right. <laughs> you know Joyce, the guy can't read. Now he can't even hear. Me? I, Joyce. Please do not interrupt, I, Joyce. Joyce. Accept you as my husband. Accept you as my husband. Please, Joyce, you can still get out of it. To respect and make a lovely couple gestures. Ha ha! Did you see that, McMahon? A sign from the heavens. It's not going to work. Somebody threw something. That's a nice-looking tie Uncle Elmer has on. I pledge myself yeah, she's to obviously you. sick. For I pledge myself to you. The rings, please. All right, here it comes now, Jeff. Here come the rings. Are the rings going on fingers or in noses? <laughs> but you... This is a wedding. The wedding rings are a visible sign of All the right. marriage of Uncle he's Elmer to get the, uh, He's having some difficulty <laughs> getting the ring on her finger, I think. Hey, I hope these... that's not a premonition of what's going to come later. These two are both very visible. No doubt about that. Elmer having some difficulty. I got it now. He got it now. All right, good. Well, you know what they say about grease and hogs. Uh, please, please repeat yes. after me, Uncle Elmer. I think Jesse Ventura could have had a nice career as just a guy coming out to roast weddings. Like, that's a very specific genre. But I would love it if, like, he would attend weddings and just provide commentary. Like, uh, like not something that's, like, live that the people could listen to then. But I would totally watch a tape of... My wedding of, like, Jesse Ventura roasting me as I go along. I feel like that's easy money for him, although I know he doesn't like to travel because, you know, TSA, 9-11, nude conspiracies, all that sort of stuff. But Elmer, <laughs> Elmer going all Dan Quayle there, like the old SNL skit where Dan Quayle couldn't figure out how to do the uh, <laughs> oath of office. If you'll raise your right hand and place your left hand on the Bible. Now repeat after me. I, James Danforth Quayle. I, James Danforth Quayle. Do solemnly swear to faithfully execute the office of Vice President of the United States. Do... I'm sorry, what? Do solemnly swear. Do solemn and swear. Solemnly swear. Solemnly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Swear. Swear. To. To. Faith. Faith. Fall. Fall. Lee. Lee. X. So a lot of this is breaking down because this is the longest Elmer probably has had to work in quite some time. 
I mean, he's been in that ring for like five minutes. He's probably sweating balls at this point. Poor Joycey's got shit being thrown at her from the New Jersey crowd, who's probably a little bit restless. So they look to the locker room for a savior. I give you this ring as a sign. I give you, I can't hear you. I give you this <laughs> ring as a sign. I give you, you this ring as a sign. Of my constant faith and abiding love. And of my intention and faith and abiding love. <laughs> Joyce, would you place Uncle Elmer's ring on his finger? Would you please stop it? He got it right. He's nervous. I'm nervous. Ooh, he's you, nervous. Please repeat finger. after me. Ooh. I give you this ring as a sign. I give you this ring as a sign. Of my constant faith and abiding love. Of constant faith and abiding love. She's got to be the greatest now, liar in the world. if any person here present can show just cause She's why Uncle Elmer and Joyce should not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else forever hold his peace. Wait a minute, what's that again? I'm going to over this way. I didn't do nothing, McMahon. Oh, wait. Roddy Piper. There is no room here for romance and wrestling. What is this? I object. Roddy's here to save there the day. There is no room here for a pink farmer in the ring marrying anybody enduring a wrestling match. I say that you stink, you stink as a whole. This shows no reverence whatsoever for this solemn and sacred ceremony. I think it's great. Throw the judge out. Put Roddy in there to marry him. I don't know why, but I was expecting him to say the line from Chinatown at the end of the movie. Forget it, Elmer. It's Chinatown. But we have to get to the final kiss and the line that Jesse Ventura claims is the funniest thing that he ever said as a wrestling broadcaster. I now pronounce you to be husband and wife. Hooray! May I kiss your spouse. Look at that! Look at that! Oh, Jesse, what do you think of that? Look at that! It looks like two carp in the Mississippi River going after the same piece of corn. It what? looks like two carp in the river going after the same corn on the hook. Right. Well, I'd love to criticize Vince for kind of no-selling Jesse's line there about the carp in the Mississippi. <laughs> he probably didn't know what he was saying. And, and anyway, probably best to you know land the plane gently rather than just sort of driving it into the ground. But this kind of reminds me of that Bushwhackers match at the 92 Royal Rumble, which was just awful, but completely saved by Bobby Heenan just riffing on Jameson and anything else he could think of and make fun of. This is kind of very much like that because it's literally one of the most annoying wrestlers, not only of the time period, but in the whole history of the promotion, who is getting married in this long, endless segment where you're just waiting for something to happen. It does. It takes them about 45 seconds. But what saves it is the commentary on this, and I say it time and again. Yes, I'm watching this for the wrestling, for the storylines, for the characters, all that stuff. But to me, when I watch, if the commentary is really good, I will literally watch any manner of bad wrestling. Alex Rodriguez is drilled, and he says something to Bronson Arroyo. And we know what he said. Here we go. Veritek and A-Rod going at it. 
Schilling is right in the middle of it. Now another fight off to the side. Millar is in it. Nixon is in it. For all the baseball games that I've been to in my life, I've never seen a full bench-clearing brawl. And I was actually invited to go to that game. And I turned it down. I can't believe it. Part of it was I had to work in the morning, but the game wasn't until like 3 in the afternoon because it was being played like late afternoon for Fox, for whatever reason. But I had a kegger at my house the night before, and I had a lot of my old friends over, and one of them invited me to that game. And I said no. And yeah, I woke up at like 5 the next morning. Uh, I threw up, and then I went to work for two hours because people had to drop off stuff and somebody had to be there oh I, I just i just think of how i could have gone to that game and i, I didn't i probably would have died had i had to sit there because i guess there was a rain delay that delayed the start by an hour hour and a half something like that but yeah i've never seen a bench clearing brawl at a baseball game for all the minor league games that i go to i've seen managers get ejected and throw chairs back onto the field bobby knight style i've seen the bullpens empty but i've never seen an actual fight break out and I know I, I just played the Ron Artest thing as an example of how that could go horribly wrong. But the baseball ones, you know, they, they tend to be fairly harmless unless it's a Yankee cheap-shotting Bill Lee by picking him up and literally pile-driving him onto his shoulder, as it happened in 1976 with the Red Sox and Yankees. It still remains to this day. So I don't know. I don't think they're going to have a brawl when they play those London games coming up in June. Although that would be nice. It would be a nice present for the amount of friggin' airfare that I have to pay to go over to watch two teams that I don't even like. Bobby Heenan, I'm sorry you didn't like my organ playing. Well, I would add one more thing. You know, NBC television here has a big peacock. And in just a couple minutes, you're going to see a big 500-pound turkey go right down. Organ playing, peacock, come on, Heenan and Oakland. You're not going to get one past me. I see where you're going with that. You're trying to sneak it onto the network because it's past midnight, and that's fine with me. If you want to be subversive, all the better. This feud between the Heenan family of Andre the Giant continues unabated here. The, the feud with Stud and Andre is so played out. We're in year three or four, and it's it, it's not even fun anymore, the way the Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones's army, as I covered a couple weeks ago, how that could kind of stay fresh. Yeah, you got a haircut in each of those, but in the Valiant one, you got multiple haircuts and, and beards getting cut off, all sorts of stuff. With the Andre thing, other than the haircut and the body slam challenge where Heenan goes in after the match at WrestleMania 1 and steals the money and runs off with it and kind of creates that great image that is still played to this day. But King Kong Bundy, who's there with Stud, kind of the Ken Patera replacement, if you will, he's at least fresh as a Andre opponent going forward. I'm not saying that they're going to have four-and-a-half-star classics or anything like that, but it's a big guy you can throw in there against Andre, and it's perfectly plausible. Andre teaming up with Tony Atlas for this match is so bizarre and just unbelievably weird because of Atlas's position on the card. Yeah, he was a tag team champion the the previous year, but holy crap how the mighty had fallen. First of all, he is one of the guys, he is not on the first WrestleMania. I don't even think he even comes close to sniffing that. 
He's teaming with George Wells in the rare appearances on TV. So that that tells you where he's at, where he's basically with the ultimate jobber to the stars of the time period. And now here he is teaming with Andre the Giant against the heated family. So I guess it shows that Andre, you know, is is racially woke. He's cuz after what had happened with SD Jones and he gets his hair cut, he's not going to hold the race or color of his tag team partner based on what happens against him. Big smile on the face of Andre coming to the ring, which always always a joy. You don't think of Andre the Giant as having a great smile, but it really kind of made me happy to see him, you know, kind of basking in the adulation of the fans as he makes his way to the ring. They show a replay of an injury angle they had shot for Andre at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto in August, so a couple of months before this. And it was effectively so that he could go to New Japan and work there for about a month, month and a half. Very Bill Wattsian of them to do that, because usually you'd have like the Ted DiBiase injury angle, where then DiBiase goes and works the real world tag league in Japan in you know November or whenever it is. So, so Andre is still working regularly. It's not like he's taking huge gaps of time off the way in 86 where he's in the machines but you never really see him because it's always substitute guys for the machines really just holding down Andre Bundy hitting him with the big splash as Gorilla Monsoon on commentary has a very weird take come on referee do something even if it's wrong not sure what Gorilla is suggesting, but having heard his views on immigration at various points, like at WrestleMania 5, when he said, we already have enough of the poor and the tired, I bet I bet it's probably something along the lines of he thinks the referee should declare a state of emergency, even though this stuff happens in wrestling all the time and it really is not befitting of an emergency. Tony Atlas in this match, he's barely mentioned. Like, he he's basically already at the ring. You don't see him coming to the ring with Andre. And Andre actually starts out the match, which I found rather unusual. He goozles Bundy right away and starts choking him with his own singlet, which is kind of a gray area, although I guess the choke move would be illegal but it's also using the guy's own equipment against him, and he crushes him with his back in the corner, that thing where he would just hold the corner ropes, and a very effective move for Andre because it allowed, it. it's just a big man power move, but with Andre it works because of just how massive he is and how huge his back is. He uses Atlas to headbutt Bundy, which was basically the double noggin knocker, but because Atlas is a stereotype of a hard head or something like that, and racism and all that, that means that Bundy gets the worst of it. There are no knee pads when when Atlas tags in. Him and Bundy have no knee pads, and I love how that's the one thing that I'm immediately fixated on, is how none of these, neither of these, of course, Andre doesn't have any either, probably because um, none of them would fit. Bundy misses an elbow, Bundy gets headbutted, but then makes the tag over to Stud, who is the recipient of more headbutts. Yes, some very diverse offense from Tony Atlas. He tries for a body slam on Stud, and that fails. And then he misses on a drop kick, but eventually Andre catches Stud from the ring apron and just kind of holds him there. But Bundy kind of sneaks into the ring, quickly splashes Tony Atlas. 
But still, somehow, and this seemed weird given that Atlas had just been hit with the splash, Andre ends up getting a tag, and he comes in to face Stud, hits him with the big boot. Here is Bundy from behind. Atlas is of very little use at this point. And Bundy comes in, works over Andre. Stud moves over to take care of Atlas, who is sent back first into the ring post, has him in kind of a... He has him up just for the body slam, just drives him back first into the ring post. So now Atlas has been incapacitated on the floor, just like SD Jones many months before him. And Andre gets avalanched in the corner, and the bell rings for the disqualification. So now you're thinking, okay, you get the Heenan. They already cut his hair. I mean, what the hell are they going to do at this point to Andre? Well, we're not going to find out because his old buddy Hulk Hogan is going to come in and we got to set up the main event for the next Saturday night's main event. Oh, Hulk Hogan, the champion, starting through. What is this? What business has Hogan got in there? The thing that strikes me immediately about this is that it's Hulk Hogan helping out his old 1980 and 81 enemies because he's feuding with Andre for much of the year in 1980. And then you get to 81 at the end of his WWF run. Tony Atlas is his main opponent and Atlas is the last guy to actually beat him clean in the WWF back at that time. And this is purely to set up the next Saturday Night's Main Event, as I said. It's not the first time that these guys have teamed up, but it's enough of a novelty that it can certainly be the hook of the next show. They had actually teamed up, I believe, on some WWF house shows previous to this, but also in the AWA in 1983, I believe they had some two-on-three or two-on-four handicap matches against Heenan's guys, oddly enough. I am kind of interested in how the rating actually went down for the Saturday Night's Main Event for the Hogan-Andre, which was a 68 this one was in the eights. It's still a rating that's a little bit better than what your average SNL rating would be for that 85-86 season. So it's not like it's a complete disaster. The novelty of it, that's one thing. But seeing Tony Atlas here as a complete third wheel, I have to admit, it's kind of sad. Miller still waiting for his first pitch. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts. Oh, safe. Well, it wouldn't be the last time that Dave Roberts would help the Red Sox win a big playoff game. Sometimes you do it with stolen base and good base running, and other times you do it by putting Ryan Madsen in the game, even though he completely sucks. And we are here looking for the most cunning and elusive creature on this entire planet. No, it's not Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, or Judge Crater. As they would often do on the other Saturday Night Main events, they have Gene Okerlund out in the field, and he is at the Detroit Zoo looking for George the Animal Steel. And the reference there to Judge Crater is quite dated by the time 1985 rolls around. I mean, that's something that was an expression used in the 30s. To pull a crater means to disappear. Crater was kind of like the Jimmy Hoffa of his time. Instead of a union boss, he was actually a judge in New York City, and his disappearance and all of that kind of led to the jokes of Paula Crater from back in those days. Not something that's really used now. So it's a 50-year-old reference that Oakland is using. And now that I think about it, if I were to use a reference from, say, 1968, 
that's pretty much the same timing, and that, that kind of makes me sad, I mean, the way time, time just marches on. So they kind of recite the various animals that they see, a uh, camel is sheik, ha ha ha, Hip, hippopotamus is King Kong Bundy, ha ha ha, that's great, but eh, at least... You know, they, they figure out, once again, just like Jimmy Valiant and all those other guys a couple weeks ago in Jim Crockett Promotions 1985, they know the way to my heart. We're looking into the tiger's den. It seems to be very, very dark in there. I can't tell. George, what kind of tiger is that? Detroit. Detroit tiger. He does seem a little sleepy this season. I have to say the 85 Tigers are kind of the definition of a championship hangover because in 84, they just ran through everybody after winning 35 out of their first 40 games. They didn't get much out of Alan Trammell in 85. Just kind of looking at the numbers, they had traded Howard Johnson and the guy who played third base for them, completely forgettable to the point where I didn't even write down his name and I don't even remember it. He didn't do very well. Jack Morris was his usual Jack Morris self, which is to say... Definitely not a Hall of Famer, and it's an absolute travesty and injustice that he was voted in. Willie Hernandez, overused the year before as a reliever, is is also, you know, he's over 100 innings in 85. So, like I said, kind of a championship-level hangover for them. So, kind of funny how the observation is actually correct. So, they just run down the names of the animals, like I said. And then at the end, George runs into the woods to escape, as it were. I mean, it's a perfectly fine segment. There's not a lot to it. It's that George the Animal Steel was a very important part of Saturday Night's main event for the first 13 or so episodes up to the end of 1987. He's a guy that they like to turn to time and again, kind of like a reliable middle reliever in the 6th or 7th inning to get you a few outs. I think that's the way NBC... Uh, yeah, I'm sure in their meetings, they're like, we gotta get George Steele in there to get those important outs with guys on base in the 6th and 7th inning. But they would use him... At in so many key spots on this show, you got him in the first match in his babyface turn. They use him against Randy Savage literally like four times. It might have even been five. I don't even remember. So he he's a very key component to this show. Maybe not to the level of obviously of Hogan or Randy Savage a little bit later on because we we don't see him until a later Saturday Night's main event. But for better or worse, he was a guy that they definitely wanted to utilize on this show. Trying to do the same. Damon hits it in the air to right field. Sheffield back in the corner. At the wall, a grand slam. Johnny Damon. Quiet all series goes deep. Four more runs, and it's 6-0. Before the Damon home run. There's another one in the right field. Johnny Damon is going off. Three for three. Six Runs batted in, and it's an eight to one Red Sox lead. <laughs> yeah, I could have highlighted David Ortiz and his two walk off hits earlier in the series. Those get a lot of headlines. I probably should fi- figure out a way to honor Keith Folk for his contributions in games four, five, and six, where he throws a hundred pitches over three days. Basically just sacrificing his right arm for the good of the franchise and helping them win a World Series. Folk getting booed the next year kind of makes me mad in retrospect because he certainly deserved better. You'd think that, oh, because a guy played on the 2004 Red Sox, he's entitled to drinks for life in the city of Boston. 
Well, yeah, I agree. That is the case, unless you're going to post a bunch of internet memes insulting Muslims and all that. Because that, has anybody ever pissed away goodwill as quickly as Kurt Schilling did? I mean, seriously, just, just think about it. Oh, my God. So up next, we have Tony Gurria and Leap and Lady Poffo. Not the team you were probably expecting to see. They are in the ring for the traditional build-up-a-heel-slash-first-tag-team-title defense. So you get two Saturday Night Main Event tropes in one. Because when teams would win the tag team title, they would often make a big deal about this is the first televised defense of the titles. And they did it with Demolition in 88 after they had won the tag titles and done it with the Hart Foundation in 87 as well. It was something that was done, I want to say, nearly a half dozen times. But we go to an interview with the Dream Team and they do a flashback of how they won the titles from the U.S. Express which is Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham, who, by the way, they say are going to be sitting ringside for this. Windham was in there with Valentine and Beefcake, grabbed the cigar of luscious Johnny V and rubbed it in the eye of Windham. Kind of a interesting finish there that you can do today because of smoking regulations <laughs> really making it hard on heels i want i want to think that all the smoking regulations came up because they saw the finish to that match like oh we can't we can't have smoking indoors because somebody's gonna get their eye taken out <laughs> something like, probably not so Wyndham, his he leaves shortly after this and his last actual match is in October of 85 on the 16th of the month and his last appearance on TV is the one that I mentioned earlier a week after this on October 12th which would be the only time that episode of Championship Wrestling the only time the US Express version of Wyndham and Rotundo came out to the song Real American from the wrestling album This dream team of Greg Valentine and Brutus Beefcake, I'm not even going to acknowledge the other one. I had ranked number 49 on my GWWE tag team list for a place to be nation. And I know Valentine has said in talking about how this team was formed that we wanted to teach Beefcake how to work. It was something to that extent. And I think there's a certain logic, I guess, to that, even though he had been wrestling for a number of years. But it's a very good idea that you had Valentine. He's coming off his Intercontinental title run, which had lasted, I want to say, like almost a year from late 84 up to the summer of 1985 in July. Loses in the cage in Baltimore to Tito Santana. So that feud is now finally over. So what do you do with Valentine at this point? You're not going to have him as a Hogan opponent necessarily so you got to find something for him to do and i think having him as a tag team guy was a pretty good usage of him while at the same time giving beefcake something to do hammer starts out with leaping lanny and the supple one gets worked over that that's poffo by the way in case you haven't watched all those msg house shows where lord alfred hayes calls lanny poffo very supple it's it's an adjective that he would go to all the time they cut to the U.S. Express watching at ringside, tag out to Beefcake, and Poffo fires up before they can do the proper double team with the hip toss and a drop kick. And he goes up and he does the second rope moonsault. Again, with Lanny Poffo, he would do all this weird stuff that would make you go, huh, in 1985. But, you know, like I always say, there's something with Lanny Poffo that's a little weird that you're, you're never going to push him to that level. I don't know if he's held back because Savage is his brother or what it is, but I, I think there's just a certain weirdness to that guy. But, of course, he would have a much more famous Saturday Night's main event match at 
at a point down the road. They do they do get control again. The save is done by Valentine when Poffo went for the pin after the moonsault. He does get the tag. Poffo is kept in the corner, and he escapes, but Valentine actually dives to keep him from making the tag to Gurria. That was actually a pretty smart move by Valentine. Goes for another pin attempt, and Poffo kicks out and immediately dives and tags Tony Gurria at that point, and he got drop kicks for both Valentine and Beefcake, hits a crossbody for two. And it's kind of nice to see Tony Gurria back well again after getting hit in the head with that bottle by Terry Funk. It wasn't that long before this on Tuesday Night Titans. I want to say it was about five or six weeks back in the middle of June. That was also in episode 30, as I've covered. And Gurria, he charges to the corner and he gets hit with a back elbow by Brutus who tags out to Valentine because he knows who the captain of the team is. And the hammer, he wastes absolutely no time, locks in the figure four, because you can see that Gurria is old school and he's not wearing knee pads, so that figure four is really going to have quite the impact, and that is how they pick up the win. I may have undersold it in the commentary of this, but Greg the Hammer Valentine looks so friggin' good in this match for the little bit of time, about the five minutes that they had. It's kind of like when you give a person a nice new project at work, something new, something fresh, something different. I know it. that's the way I would feel if I was given anything, you know, really relevant to do at work. Instead, I'm kind of stuck where I am, I guess. I, I You know, I, I don't even really want to go into that. So it, I think this was really good usage of Greg ha- the Hammer Valentine going forward. You had Johnny V puffing on the victory cigar, thinking he's Red Auerbach or something like that. It just made me think, oh, Vince McMahon, you said you took wrestling out of the smoky halls and all that sort of stuff. And you got a guy in the corner, luscious Johnny V, a childhood friend of yours, who's actually turning it back into a smoky hall. Come on, which what do you want here? Take On Me by AHA with that great video. Also, just a plain great song that I listened to yesterday on my way home from work. Number four that week in 1985. It's also very good as bumper music, so it will not surprise you to learn that if you watch the original show on YouTube, the WWF and NBC used it as a bumper on this very program. So now we are on to the wedding reception. And Vince is kind of introducing us to what's going on. And you can see in the background that Hogan and Mr. Wonderful are sitting at the same table. So that's an interesting pairing that's going to really pay off about a year from now. But it ends up being a four-seater that would have been the greatest episode of Table for Three, or Table for Three plus one in this case, as it is Vince McMahon, Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan, and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Now, we probably don't even need Orndorff, although I think he brings something to the table at the very least. But Vince, Jesse, and Hogan just eating dinner. Tell me you would not watch the shit out of that. Oh my god, what a collection of guys this is. So Jesse is kind of, he's, he's being very petulant about this entire thing. Almost like he's a 10-year-old boy who has been taken somewhere and he, he, he just doesn't want to be there anymore. And Vince is like the the beleaguered dad trying to rein it all in. And I don't know what Hogan is. I guess Hogan's just a buddy of Vince. 
Well, I'll tell you, that wedding was something else, and there's no doubt that the reception here is also going to be something. Jesse, Jesse, please. What are you writing? What am I writing? What are you doing? I'm writing a poem. You sure don't smell very good. Go along with your wardrobe, your change of wardrobe. Nonetheless, Hulk Hogan, what did you think of the wedding? It was a beautiful wedding, Vicious Vince, a little different. And this may be just the type of thing that Uncle Elmer needs, a positive type of event that might just give him the sight to go all the way to the top of the WWF. You never know. Could very well boost him. So Paul Orndorff, what did you think of the wedding? I thought it was great, Vince. You know, it's part of history. It's the second time ever somebody being married on the right man since 1969. I thought it was great. You know, I wouldn't be here at all. Jesse, would you please cool it? What? Cool it. Hey, I dressed down for this occasion. This is my Keith Richards look, elegantly wasted. Have you seen Lou Albano anywhere? Oh, I love Papa Vince just completely giving up on trying to corral Jesse. And I'm like, all right, well, clearly this isn't going to work. So where the hell is Lou Albano? Maybe I'll have some success with him. So they go over to him. By the way, those four guys got to have a wedding wrap-up show, and I didn't. So I am a little bit jealous of that. So Lou is with Mean Gene Oakland, and I was thinking of the notion of Captain Lou as a wedding guest. I feel like he could he could probably be the worst wedding guest of all time, but he could also be a really great wedding guest if he's on his game. I think back to the Butcher Vashon wedding from TNT about a year before this, and he wasn't the worst guy at that wedding, although he certainly was plenty wasted. I'd say the worst wedding guest was Dr. D. David Schultz. I gotta find that episode of TNT. It's probably a two-hour one, so I'm I'm never gonna cover that. So, Lou is actually with Cousin Junior, so I guess they're sort of babysitting each other, I guess? But what I'm trying to do, Gene, is show the cousin how to eat, baby. I'm trying to tell him, use the left hand at all times. It don't matter about the left hand. You can pick up butter. You can can even take and dunk into anything you want in the left hand. Because you always want to keep that right hand clean, Gene, in case you need a friend. Yeah, don't matter, mouthful. That's proper etiquette. It's the elegant book of etiquette. You want to pat a friend on the back. Thank you very much, Captain Lou Albano, Cousin Junior. All right, I don't give a flying flippity fuck of what Cousin Junior has to say, but Captain Lou... Kind of an interesting point there of like you got to do everything with your left hand when it comes to the food because you need the right hand to shake hands with people. I don't know how good the bathroom was in this particular reception hall. I mean, usually the places will have towels. Like the wedding that I attended, they had like the little towels so you can get your hands pretty dry and it's nice and sanitary and all that. Not sure how it was in this case, especially with hillbillies running the damn show. Plus, you got to consider that hand sanitizer, not as big a thing in 1985. So you got to be on the lookout for people with colds and stuff like that as you're, as you're getting into those colder months of the year. You, you really have to think of it. So we go to the next guest at this reception. And the eclectic nature of what people are wearing, some of them have decided to dress up. Uh, some of them have decided to do dressy versions of them, like Hogan with his sleeveless whatever, because got to show up the pythons, brother. And then you got Lanny Poffo, who is like taking a page out of Andre's book. Is just in his gear, like no shirt on, no pants. Although with what Lanny Poffo was apparently packing, apparently he wanted to show it off for any bridesmaids who might be there. Although I think he should have thought about who the bride was. It's not going to be like some 23-year-old hot bridesmaid or whatever that Lanny is going to split in two after the ceremony. But Lanny, he knows he knows what he does best. And it's n- not performing fellatio on himself. It's writing a poem. And this is actually one of his better ones. On this auspicious occasion, a loving commitment for life. Joyce Stasco and Uncle Elmer are united as man and wife. Unselfishly, they share their love with every single wrestling fan who supported Uncle Elmer 
a wonderful, big-hearted man. And we thank them for this moment so the multitudes may see the joy of the Holy Spirit through the family of NBC. I thought that that was very thoughtful of him. And he probably wrote it himself, as I understand it. And he probably doesn't give two shits about Uncle Elmer. It's that I'm going to get over to a national audience using poetry. Which, you gotta love that. I mean, he's a regular Charles Bukowski. Except for the fact that, you know, his stuff is cleaned up a little. So now, after Okerlund, he starts banging on his glass. You know, where you do the thing where you take the utensil and you hit the glass. Well, he ends, he ends up breaking it. Which is actually kind of kind of a funny moment for Okerlund. But now it is time for a Hillbilly Jim toast. Because he is the best man. And... You, you, you just think it, I know, his Hall of Fame speech, like a Fidel Castro four-hour address to the United Nations General Assembly, which, by the way, is a thing that actually happened back in the day. But, I don't know, I'm willing to hear him out because he's a nice guy, but I really hope he's not doing that toast where it's the, all right, take your hand and now put your hand over your wife's hand, and this is the last time you'll have the upper hand. Joyce and Uncle Elmer, we want to wish y'all many years of love and happiness. I don't want y'all to forget that every Sunday, I'm open for dinner invites. How about that? Can't get any better than that. Well, that's interesting. A 12-second speech from Hillbilly Jim where he invites himself over to dinner every Sunday as a recurring guest. It's a good thing he's a nice guy because he's kind of coming off a little poor, at least on this episode. But now we have the visiting dignitary, and it is a nice callback to the 1969 wedding on The Tonight Show that reached 40 million viewers. Tiny Tim is here. He has tiptoed his way through the damn tulips. And he's, God help us, he's going to say a few words. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Tiny Tim and don't know what he looks like, think of Weird Al, but with a weird, creepy, you know, kind of molesty vamp to it. Thank you so much, Mr. Mean Gene, and for that lovely introduction, and it's so nice coming from you, a dear old friend of mine. It's great for you to be here. And it's a pleasure being here, especially at this beautiful wedding uh, for Mr. Elmer and Miss Joyce uh, on this most important night of all nights. And I want to congratulate you all on this beautiful night. I don't know how weddings are. I've gone through uh, a big one on television. Uh, it didn't work out, but I have some advice for you, and that is through the hard times, Mr. Elmer, uh, uh, you know, just be wonderful to your lovely wife and teach her to tiptoe through the tulips with you. I like that. The best part about that speech, other than when it ended, of course, is Gene Okerlund kind of looking at the camera a la Jim Halpert a couple times and making some interesting faces, I'll say. And Tiny Tim gives Uncle Elmer a ukulele, which I think is an interesting gift. I mean, that is what Tiny Tim would play. Elmer is very grateful for it, I guess, to get something from a celebrity. I wonder where that ukulele is now. I bet it's in some garbage landfill um, somewhere. Maybe, maybe Staten Island, since it probably got thrown away almost immediately. But wait, no. He's not going to play the ukulele on this show, because... Sweet Lord of Mercy, Uncle Elmer is going to sing. And I, I have to wonder, is he a better singer than he is a professional wrestler? Walk through this world with me. Go where I go. Share all my dreams with me. I love 
love you so. So the answer to my question is no, he is not a good singer either. Although the band behind him, they're okay. I mean, they're, they're perfectly professional. They're a perfectly cromulent group of musicians. Meanwhile, as he's singing, you can see Jesse Ventura at the table. He's kind of taking notes about this whole thing because he's preparing some remarks where he's going to crash this bitch and he's going to save us the way he did during the ceremony. Hey, I got something to say. Looks like you're still in mourning for James Dean, Jesse. Huh. There's always a place in life for love. A place for the lily, a place for the dove. There's always a time in life to care. A time to cuddle, a time to share. Yes, a time and place for everything. A place to dance and a time to sing. Now I've seen your dance and I've heard your song. And I must tell you that this is wrong. That wrestling is a deadly dance and is no partner to romance. And shame on those who ever did mix wrestling and romance just for these hicks. <laughs> I have to admit, that's a little bit more mean and lacks some of the charm of the stuff that Jesse was doing earlier. So at this point, Hogan and Orndorff, they, they were kind of looking at each other like, all right, let's see where this one is going. And then eventually they get up to confront Jesse, who kind of backs away. But unfortunately for the body, he backs into Hillbilly Jim, who pushes him forward, and Jesse ends up landing in the wedding cake. And it's a good thing that Jesse had a bunch of eye protection on with those big-ass sunglasses that had wings on them or whatever the hell it was. But the funny thing is, this isn't even the first cake spot in Saturday Night Main Event history on the second show. They did one on a, with a Mother's Day theme on the first Saturday Night's Main Event, where Moolah and Mean Gene Okerlund ended up getting cake on them when there was a bit of a melee with Cindy Lauper and all of them back then. So kind of funny how they would repeat the same bit on the second show several months later. So they remind us that the Hogan-Andre team will be four weeks from that very night, and maybe I'll be covering that show. I mean, I've covered the second and fourth Saturday Night Main events, and I've done a bunch of them for the place to be podcast so i might as well get in all the ones from before i started doing them on the place to be podcast which would be october of 87 because they they are certainly a breezy watch and i like watching all of them pretty much i mean there's something interesting they're not all good but they're definitely easy to get through and that is how they wrap for saturday night's main event for october 5th 1985 No YouTube comment theater this week because this show is as bloated as Uncle Elmer, and so is the comment section on that video, which is like 385, so it's almost impossible to wade through that stuff and find the best material. So I'm just going to plug my friends of the show, starting with my occasional podcast partner, Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters, who was just on the Place to Be podcast covering the January 23rd, 1989 WWF house show at Madison Square Garden. He had Jimmy Trania on the sportscasters in the last episode that was released a couple of days ago on the wrestling podcast about nothing with mike crockett and ring of honor's own brian malonis they talk about the politics of warring local promotions a very interesting topic 
And I can't wait to listen to that because I think there's going to be a lot of fun stories with vandalism and stuff like that. Oh, and I'm actually going to the Chaotic Wrestling Show this Friday in my childhood hometown of Woburn, Massachusetts. Very excited to get back to watching live wrestling. And, of course, our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn which I may be listening to while ice skating in my backyard. Yes, that is how I've listened to their last two episodes. I have enough ice in my backyard where I can actually skate out there for an hour. And let me tell you something. It is a friggin' blast. You people who live in the southern part of the United States, you have no idea what you're missing. On their show, they talked about the death of the true babyface, but not any one particular babyface, just the whole concept of it. I don't have a plan for next week's show, so I'm probably just going to wing it, I think. Where I'll come up with something because I have a long queue. I have a lot of videos saved. So there's a lot to choose from. It's a matter of finding the time and something that really kind of catches my interest and your interest as well. And please, do me a favor. Leave a review on iTunes, Apple Music if you haven't already. Five stars, definitely the preferred methodology. Because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to this podcast and enjoying this podcast as well. The other thing you can do for me, because I do not have a Patreon, and I am unlikely to ever have that, a Kickstarter, a PayPal donation campaign or whatever, uh, give a subscription to my YouTube channel, which is Peter Winson. You'll know it from the Baltimore Orioles logo that I have there from the 1966 World Series. It's one of the coolest logos in the history of sports because it's a freaking Oriole bird holding a bat, but also tipping his cap as well. It's just, just fantastic. I'm getting very close to a 1,000 subscribers, and that means that I'll actually get ad revenue again for the very limited things that I post, and I hope to get more time to post more. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week, and tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Joyce, would you place Uncle Elmer's ring on a screen? Would you please stop it?